It's good to see you. My name is Luke, and um, I'm excited to talk to you today from Galatians. Just as uh, Wes had mentioned, we're going through a series on Galatians. And so if you look in your Bible, is Chase in here? Chase or Kevin? I'm way super hot up here. Can we just get it down like scotch? <laughs> hey, raise your hands. If you have a, Nielsen's, a Nielsen ratings box hooked up to your TV or you have had one in the past, raise your hand. Nielsen ratings box. All right? They're still out there. Nobody? Actually, if you have one, you're not supposed to tell people. It's like Fight Club. It's supposed to be kind of secret. Nobody's got one. I had one growing up. The Nielsen Company, they disperse these boxes randomly across the country. Um, They pay a little bit of a stipend, like 50 bucks a month or something like that. And what they do is they record the shows you watch, how long you watch it, when you turn it to the channel, when you turn it away from the channel. They look at the rhythms of how you flip around. And it's real important to sponsors, advertisers, companies that want to put their commercials in just the right places. So you have some shows that have high Nielsen ratings, and those are the ones that get fifth and sixth and seventh seasons. And then you've got ones that measure very low, right? And they end up on Netflix someday with like half a season. And so that's how it works. So if you're ever watching TV and you're thinking, how on earth is this show still on TV? That's because there are families totally unlike you across the country <laughs> that are going, yeah, we're waiting all day for this show. And they turn early and the, advertiser, the advertisers love it and they pick it up. Also, conversely, if there's a show that you just love and then it disappears, Nielsen is the reason for a lot of that. So fortunately for you, you do have Netflix. So you could catch up on Murder, She Wrote or Doctor Who or whatever you weirdos watch. So the reason I, I bring that up is it's a good illustration for me. It keeps it fresh in my mind because I do think that as Christians, really as people, as humans, we walk around with Nielsen ratings boxes stuck in our head that take notice, make logs, just record what people like and record what people don't like. I mean, I think we have this perceived audience of our peers and those that we like and those that we look up to around us. And I think we just pay attention to what channels they like. We want big ratings from these people. I think that ultimately we think people, our peers and those we look up to, can give us what we really, really want, which is value, approval, acceptance. And we pay attention, don't we? We, we really notice. We say and we will do just about anything that grants us that approval and that acceptance and that high value. When, before God redeems a heart, before God comes in and changes us, from what would be considered totally lost to being totally safe. Before God does that, we look around and we notice things. We notice where the world places value. We notice that pretty girls get all the attention, right? Athletic guys get all the favor. Musicians get the girls. Funny guys get to the parties. We notice these things. And so even if we don't like those things, even if we don't want them, we kind of cruise towards them and we try to be one of those things. Why? Because they are valued in society. They're valuable, right? And if those main categories don't work, we invent some, don't we? The silent brooder, right? He gets attention. What's wrong with that guy? That's attention. That's attention that looks like value, right? What about the victim? We love the victim, don't we? Where that becomes their main identity. And why why do people like the victim? Why do the victims like being victims? Because they get sympathy, and that is value. That is attention given, approval, acceptance. How are you doing? 
a victim. What about the guy that no one is supposed to understand because he's so complex? What about that guy? about that label, right? Musicians. Misunderstood artists who hate the system and no one understands their craft and they finger paint with their feet, you know? Apple stickers on cars versus people who think that's goofy. Hipsters versus people who make fun of hipsters because they can't look like a hipster, right? SEC fans versus the whole world. (laughs) We love to hate being labeled. And as we grow up and as we mature, our labels mature, right? We become something that's a little bit different. We become the mom, the mom who has her stuff together, the mom who has her stuff and her kids together, the mom who has her stuff, her kids, her home together, and homeschools, right? The salt of the earth veteran who knows a lot of really good stuff if you just cared enough to ask him, right? The ex-athlete who blew out his knee that never got his chance. The hardworking leader, the entrepreneur, the smart guy, the theology guy. I mean, we all have these labels that mature with us. But the thing is, is the Nielsen box, it never shuts off. We still adjust our lives and we hunt for big ratings. That's what we want. And I know what some of you are thinking already. Some of you are already thinking, not me, Luke. Not me. I don't need that kind of identity. I'm not looking for approval from people. But you are, aren't you? You just want to be the guy that doesn't care what people think about you, right? But you too are a people pleaser. It's not your fault. That's the way you were created. We were all created to attach an identity to ourselves. That's the way we came. That's the way God found us. When God came, he found us busily attaching identities to ourselves, looking for one that would work. We look like NASCAR with stickers all over us, trying to figure out what channel can I turn to that all my peers look at me and they like and they value me. God finds us. Listen, when God finds you, whenever he redeems you, when God finds you, he does not find you behaving. He finds you misbehaving. He doesn't find you with an identity that works and is godly. He finds you in an identity crisis. Now, when God redeems the heart, so now when God finds you, changes your heart, pulls the heart of stone out, puts the heart of flesh in, it's what the Bible calls in Titus regeneration, whenever he does that and he enables you to see your sin and comprehend his grace, whenever all of that is happening, what God does is he changes the audience. No longer is it each other in society. No longer is our audience you and me and each other. He changes it to a singular audience of one, of God. He is the new audience. And the thing is, is he's not even trying to get you to approve, or he's not even trying to get you to want to be approved or accepted from him. That whole system is gone. He takes that Nielsen box and he pulls it out and throws it away with all the wires. You don't even have to seek God for your approval and acceptance because Jesus has already done it for you. He eradicates the whole system. Paul today, He deals with approval in this short, memorable, somewhat odd passage. And in this passage, you have three main characters. You have Paul, who is being accused of being a people pleaser, right? He's being accused of being a wimp, having the fear of man, saying easy things, never saying the hard things. That's the accusation being labeled against Paul. And then you've got false teachers, a second character. The false teachers are doing the best they can to unseat Paul in the heart of the people and seat themselves. Why? Because there's approval there. It's a valuable place to be. And then the third character is you have a church, a set of churches actually. And what they do is they collect teachers around them that say things that they approve. Say easy things, but not hard things. 
So what you have is you've got this incredibly concentrated passage. We have approval, pleasing words, harsh truth, the gospel, all colliding at once. And you can tell as we get into this passage, Paul is very, very emotional. He's going to sound wounded to you a little bit. Hurt, winged, frustrated, like he's mourning a little bit. You can tell he's frustrated. He's burdened by what's going on. You see, he worked so hard to leave these churches with a solid foundation. He worked really hard. He wanted to make sure that as he left and before he left, they would understand that Jesus was sufficient and God was satisfied. Two very big, important cornerstones to the foundation of the church. Jesus is sufficient, so you don't have to keep doing things, and God is satisfied because Jesus really was that good. And he taught them, and he taught them, and he laid this beautiful foundation, and out of nowhere, these smooth, false teachers came by and robbed them. Imagine what that was doing to him inside as he hears about it, cities away. He's not even there to deal with it. He has to write a letter, right? But here he is. I mean, he he knows these people. He saw them become Christians. He witnessed it. He saw baptisms. He saw them coming out of the water and crying and yelling and celebrating and telling God of all the great things he had done. He, He witnessed neighbors being reconciled and kids being restored to their parents and marriages getting fixed. He saw churches grow. He saw churches getting planted. He witnessed his elders were placed in. I mean, he saw miracles. It looked so beautiful. And then out of nowhere, months later, not years, it's a very fast drift, months later, they're gone. They have straight up abandoned God himself. Some of you can Some of you can probably relate to that. I know it sounds like a weird thing because none of us are really Paul. But have you ever gone the long distance with somebody? I mean, just think about it. Have you ever gone the distance with somebody? Started to tell them about Jesus. Listen to their questions. Watch their questions get less goofy and a little bit more serious. The questions where you think in your mind, that's a good question. They're asking the right questions. Have you ever gone the distance where you've cried with somebody, laughed, mourned, and celebrated, and got the calls in the middle of the night, right? Have you ever extended your love, seen them reciprocate it? Have you ever seen God change their heart, watch them be baptized, watch them join the church and see them grow? Have you ever witnessed somebody pray with their own voice instead of listening to you pray and just nodding their heads? Witness somebody grow and jump into leadership and take the initiative. Have you ever gone the distance and then seen somebody vanish? Just like that. Gone. It happens. Has it happened to you? It's happened here. Look around. Some faces you don't see anymore, right? Starting good, sounding good, growing well, gone. Listen, if you haven't experienced that, keep walking the walk of a missionary, and you're going to feel it. It's inevitable, and it hurts. I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had crying over people who have left the beautiful gospel for a gospel that's not even a gospel. It's true, and it happens. Jesus actually predicted that this would happen. Up on the screen, we'll have Matthew 13. It's a parable that Jesus told about the sower sowing seed, which is the gospel. A sower went out to sow, he says, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. 
Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is saying that sometimes we preach the gospel and it's immediately rejected. Sometimes we preach the gospel and it's taken, but it's rejected as soon as a hard sacrifice is asked for. And then sometimes it's a slow fade. Sometimes we preach the gospel, they receive it and they grow, but just the long-term effects of what's really important in their life chokes out the gospel. And then sometimes, sometimes you get a Christian. Sometimes you get a Christian that profits from it. Jesus is showing us this. Now, putting those people aside... Any of you ever had anyone jaded with you? Here's another emotion Paul had to struggle with. Any of you ever feel like someone was jaded or offended or cross with you and you really wanted to recover the relationship? I mean, you really valued the relationship and you wanted the tension to go away and you wanted it to be what it was. You wanted to recover it. You wanted it bad. I mean, you just had this spiritual heartburn and you couldn't quit thinking about it. I mean, it's almost as if you could just put the right words in the right sequence and say it at the right time, at the right place, and if they could just hear your heart, then it would be fine again. It would be good again. And you wanted it so bad. Have any of you ever been there? It's so tempting when you're in that place to say things you shouldn't say and to not say some things that you should say in order to recover a relationship. It's really tempting. And Paul would have been tempted to do that in this passage. He would have been tempted to smooth things over with the jaded church and the jaded teachers. I would have done it probably. I look at this text. I put myself in Paul's shoes and I think, you know what I would have done? I would have written to the Galatians and I would have said, hey, listen, listen. I know they said some weird things that are different from me, but they might be right in some of it. We should all sit around in a big circle and talk about it. Because after all, we're in the same boat. We're all on the same team, right? There's no need for all of this. I mean, we love each other. We're all friends. That would have been tempting for me. I described these emotions that Paul must have struggled with as he wrote this to show you that it's really pertinent for us today. Let's look at Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. That's the passage that's going to show us Christ more clearly today, I believe. And that's the one that we're working through as we go through Galatians. And he starts off as this. Now listen to the emotion in the writing. I am astonished, shocked, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and in turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Okay, pause. Notice here that he says that you're deserting him, not that you're deserting it. That's not a small detail, by the way. Listen, there are a lot of people walking around. A lot of Christians walking around right now, a lot of people walking around that say that they love Jesus. They're convinced. You can't talk them out of it. They're convinced that they love Jesus. They just don't like the church, and they think mission is goofy, and they don't, they don't see the things that Christ feel are important. They don't see as important. And they see themselves as just walking away from a a corrupted, polluted system. Paul says, actually, they're abandoning God himself. Luke, you can't say that. You can't say that somebody abandons God just because they don't agree with your theology, just because they don't agree with your way of things. I'm not saying any of that. Paul is saying this. Paul is asserting that in this case, if you live a life where you are trying to satisfy God by doing a lot of spiritual push-ups, if you're doing that, then you are straight up abandoning God himself. 
not just a way of doing things. That's hard. He's telling them that they've swerved away towards very bad theology. And he's saying the reason that bad theology is there because of troublemakers who have come and distorted the gospel. John Stott says this. I don't know if this is on the screen or not. Probably. Yep. These two go together. To tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. I love that phrase, the church is created and lives by the gospel. And we say that here all the time. We are a people by the gospel for the gospel. We are a family and a community collected by the power of the gospel. And we are here for the sake of extending that gospel to the saved and to the lost, right, and to each other. We are a people by the gospel for the gospel. So I agree with John Stott here. And what he and Paul are both saying is that false teachers had come in and gotten their hands on the foundation of the church and started moving it around, the foundation. And guess what happens when that occurs? Doors don't shut as well as they used to, and windows just won't open. Anyone in here ever live in a house with a bad foundation? Because I have. Our last house in Tampa Bay Bad foundation. I guess all the houses out there don't have great foundations because we lived as the crow flies six miles from the ocean. So when I went to work in the morning, I smelled salt in the air, seagulls flying around, pooping on your car. I mean, we were really close to the water. And it was interesting because I had a shovel and I think I used it on accident once. You don't need shovels out there. I mean, I'm using my hand to dig holes and I don't even get one knuckle in before I'm touching sand, like real sand with seashells and stuff in it, right? And it's real pretty. I get it. There's sand and beaches, and it's all awesome. It will rip, a, it'll rip apart a house without any trouble at all because that sand moves, right? So I remember when we pulled up our carpet to put down wood plank flooring. Whenever we did that, <laughs> I was freaked out. Apparently, it was normal. There were cracks everywhere. I mean, the foundation was all big, like big cracks like that, really. But they were big to me, and you could see worms and demons and all kinds of stuff. And I'm in my living room. I shouldn't see that in a crack, you know? And it was no wonder because some of the windows would never quite open like they needed to. Because the house goes like that. Doors. I, need, I needed a spotter to open up my back screen door. It just would not work. I think what's happening here, I think as we read this, Paul sees that the foundation he had built upon has been changed. So problems are going to start happening. People are getting troubled. And so they're repeatedly hanging new doors and installing new windows. And guess what? It's never going to work. It's never going to work. The problem is the stupid foundation. It's the flawed foundation. Some of you have come from bad churches. You tell me. Some of you have come from flawed churches in the past. We might say you've been wrongly churched or you might consider yourself wrongly churched. Hasn't it felt like to you if the gospel is taken out that you go to church or you meet in a missional community or whatever it would be called with all these problems in your heart and the best thing they can do is look at you and say, brother, what you need is a new door. Here's three steps to install better windows. But that's not ever the problem, is it? It's a foundational issue. The reason the windows and the doors never work for you is because you have cracks in your foundation. Paul is saying that the distorting of the foundation is troubling everyone, and the distortion is the teaching that your actions will perfect your salvation. That's the lie. That's what's messing up the foundation, that your actions, your performance, your obedience is perfecting your salvation instead of Jesus perfecting your salvation. 
I love how Darren Patrick says this. He's our X-29 pastor in St. Louis. He does a very brilliant job of casting this. It's been helpful for me. He says, whenever mankind does this, whenever mankind works really hard and strives and performs in order to polish and enhance their standing with God, what they've in fact done is shrunk the distance between man and God. They've shrunk it. They've removed the delta. They've inflated and expanded themselves, and they've taken God, and they've demoted him and shrunk him in, right? It's very helpful. In effect, what this teaching is, this bad teaching is, is my actions help my standing with God, and that makes God accessible to me when I perform well. That's a false gospel, and it was destroying the Galatian church. Friends, it's destroying Knoxville. (laughs) It's destroying churches every day. This morning, as you sit here and as I speak to you, it's destroying churches this morning. This teaching, this, this idea that my attendance enhances my position before God, especially if I've been sinning lately, or my check writing makes my standing before God better, or if I play an instrument on the stage, then that's got to give me a leg up with God, right? Or what if I go to seminary? <laughs> that's got to enhance my position with God. What if I memorize a bunch of scriptures? What if I read twice as long as everybody else? You put whatever you want in the blank. Forgiving people. Put that in there. Listening to Christian music. (laughs) Not drinking alcohol. Not eating pork. Sleeping on the Sabbath. Whatever that means. Not watching R-rated movies. You put whatever you want in that thing. But if you're doing some sort of an action, usually based out of shame, in order to make your position before God more beautiful to God, if you do that, you're doing one of two things. Usually both. One of the things you're doing is you're making your actions in your performance, your Jesus. Your actions are what's saving you before God. Your performance is what's saving you before God, not Jesus. You might say something like in your mind, God is satisfied by what I do. But what you should be saying is God is satisfied by what Jesus has done. Big difference. It's not a subtle shift anymore. Do you see how different, once you chase it down to the root, how different the bad teaching is? Another thing we do is we make God indebted to us because of our actions. We never think of it in that way. God, you're supposed to do this for me because I did that for you. Rather than, God, you choose to do this for me because Jesus did that for me. It's a pretty big difference. Paul knows that a church full of people who think this way are sitting on a bad, shifty foundation, and it's tearing the house apart. That's why he is so emotional in this passage. That's why he's freaking out. His hair's everywhere, bit flying. He's doing push-ups to get all the extra stuff out of him, you know. That's what's going on right here. And now he's about to get weird, all right? Verse (laughs) 8. He just gets weird. He says weird things sometimes. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, Let him be accursed. Nowhere else in the writings of Paul do we see an emphatic repetition of a phrase. This is it. That's because he wants to be understood. That's because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. We do this, don't we? I want you to go up and clean your room. All right, Dad. No, 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 no. I want you to go up and clean your room, right? Okay, Dad. No misunderstanding. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, if anybody comes in and preaches opposite of this, if I come in 
If brilliant teacher, if John Piper walks up here and says something different than what I'm saying, if an angel himself comes in here and says something different than this true gospel, then they can go to hell. That's what he's saying. Literally, in the Greek, that's what he's saying. They can go to hell. That's a tricky passage. First of all, if an angel walked in here and started teaching you guys, y'all be running for cover. All stumbling over yourselves, wetting your britches, right? <laughs> but you come back next week, that's for sure. Because it might get cold in here, but every now and then an angel comes in, right? And that's worth coming. Listen, I can't teach too much on this passage, this little chunk right here, because it stands on its own two legs for certain. But I will add one thing. <laughs> Because there's nowhere else in the Bible I'm going to be able to teach this. If you ever leave Legacy Church, if you ever do not go the distance with us for whatever reason, and you go and you find another church home, which will happen a lot of times, please make sure, please make sure that they preach Jesus first and not you first, right? So if you're a guest, you got to hear me, all right? Hear me with love. Make sure that they base everything they do off of the person and off of the work of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, above everything. Make sure that their cross is big and bloody because our sins were that bad. Make sure that the tomb is extra empty because God was really that powerful. And make sure they preach that God is really that satisfied because Jesus is really that good. You've got to get to a church that preaches that. Listen, and I, I know the children's ministry needs to be good. I know that. And I know the music can't stink. And I know the preacher can't be Mr. Magoo. I know all of those things. But don't ever, 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 don't ever, ever go to a church that preaches with you in mind first and foremost. And Jesus is a postscript of a postscript. Don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, if you hear sermons about how you could tap into your hidden potential... Your alarm better be going up already. But if you hear sermons that teach how you can tap into your hidden potential, if you just performed a little differently, run. Run as fast as you can. Run. It's a bad church. It's bad theology. Or at least bad leadership. Okay? If you ever hear a sermon that says how God will approve of you more, if you did this more, run as fast as you can, as fast as you possibly can. If you hear any sermon talking about how there is more health for you if you did something, more money for you, more friends for you if you did things a certain way then run for the hills and take your checkbook with you run run we usually send people whenever we know that they're not going to go the distance with us we usually have now it's a short list albeit but we have a list of churches that we love churches that is a church and his leadership we'd be fine with our kids going to right and we always tell them to go there why because the win is not building a gigantic base of operations here with people that probably shouldn't be here, but it's to get people in good, God-fearing, grace-saturated and gospel-anchored churches. That is the win. We're really big on that. Once, true story, once at Cedar Bluff when we were meeting there, I wasn't even done loading the trailer, I don't think. I'm still tying stuff down and my phone rings and it was somebody that, I don't know how they got my number, I think off the screen or something, and they said, uh, hey, yeah, uh, is this Pastor Luke? Yeah, it is. Um, hey, I was at church today. Hey, thanks for coming, man. Yeah, um, is there another church I can go to? Maybe it's a little bit better. He said that. Maybe that's a little bit better. I thought, wow. Well, let me think on that, you know? But the truth is, is we're not insecure. We're not the only gig in town. If you're a guest and you do need help finding a church, come up and talk to me. Talk to one of our leaders. We, we'd love to help with that, okay? 
Verse 10, I got to move on. Paul says, for I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. I mean, hear him now. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. One of the charges being made against Paul was that he was a people pleaser, like a, like a wind vane on a barn, just turning in the direction of popular opinion, saying whatever it took to get him props, not saying difficult things. That was what was being lobbed at him. So he says, all right, all right, if that's my accusation, then I just laid it out there. How do you deal with that? Does it look like I'm trying to be cool now? I just told a whole bunch, you can go to hell. Does it look like I'm trying to win homecoming king and take up a little special offering? Doesn't look like it. So although this accusation doesn't really stick to Paul in this moment, it does stick to me. It sticks to me. Maybe it sticks to some of you, if you're honest. Right? I'm a big people pleaser. Big hunter for approval and validation. I'm probably the biggest people pleaser in this room, which should please some of you people pleasers into liking and approving me more. You see how I did that? (laughs) But maybe you're like me. Maybe you just care a little bit too much about how people look at you and think about you and value you. That's a fun place to live, isn't it? It's a hard place to live. Actually, the Bible calls it a snare. The snare, the fear of man lays a snare. It says that in the 29th proverb. And the thing about a snare is, is it never kills an animal. Snares don't kill animals. They trap them. They hold them. They enslave them. They cripple them. They bleed them out until a hunter comes to collect. And that sounds just about right. Feels just about right. There's a couple ways in which we do this, if you're like me. One way is that we seek to please others by saying certain things, by voicing certain things, right? This was what Paul was being accused of. He was being accused of pandering and catering and caving into whatever the affections of the people were. So ask yourself this. Do you do that? Do you pander and cater to what everyone says? Do you, do you say things in order to get a head nod? In order to get some affirmation? I mean, when story time comes around with you and your, and your friends, what kind of stories are you telling? Which ones do you rush to first? Are you the hero I love to tell those stories. Well, we're right in the big, fat middle, right? It's all about us. Do you do that? What kind of reputation are you looking for? What do you want to be known as? What kind of people do you want to know to be associated with, right? What what kind of people do you not want to be associated with? Where is it that you are looking for big, big ratings, Sometimes we use it with our mouth. Sometimes we seek to please others, not by things that we say, but by things that we do not say. (laughs) It's a little trickier, but it's more of a pandemic in the church. Listen, the church today suffers more at the hands of people who are not saying things than it does at the hands of people who are saying things. Right? This is tougher. How many times have you heard or seen something going on, and you just knew that you knew that you knew that you needed to insert yourself? You needed to say something, pull somebody aside, intervene to some way, shape, or form, but you knew or you feared as soon as you did, it was going to blow back in your face. It was going to blow back in your face. So out of fear of man and just wanting everyone to get along, you just kind of stepped back and didn't do anything. And you convince yourself that it's love. I'm I'm just being loving, but really it's self-love is what it is. 
It's really self-love. I think, I think it would have been easier on Paul had he not started calling these teachers out. I think it would have been. Hey, make no mistake, they were swinging back. Remember, he's writing a letter, their boots on the ground. They're there. So whenever Galatians was read aloud to the churches in Galatia, those teachers are standing there. He's telling them to go to hell, and they're standing right there. You don't think they didn't say something back? You don't think they unpacked that and kind of went for the knees? I bet you they did. I bet you they did. It would have been easier if he had just tried to smooth things over out of love. It would have been easier had he not confronted the jaded people there. It would have been easier for him to say things like, you can go to hell. It would have been easier. Man, people pleasers. People pleasers. But hey, we're easy to talk to though, aren't we? People pleasers. Because we just shake our head and we nod. We just, oh yeah, brother, I'm with you. Yeah. 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 We're easy to talk to. Because we're not going to confront you. Right? Listen, I've been told a lot of my life, Luke, you're so easy to talk to. Luke, you're you're such an easy person. You just have such a good listening ear. You want to know the dirty little secret? It's because I'm not confronting them. It's because I'm not gut-checking them every three sentences. It's because I'm leaving the gloves on because I want them to like me, right? Is that a little too vulnerable? Because if it is, you could look in the mirror. (laughs) It's the truth. It's the truth. I think another thing we do, besides saying things and not saying things to get approval, is we're really good at collecting people around us that say things that we approve of, that say things that we like. Say things that we accept. That's what was happening in the Galatian churches. Paul actually talks to Timothy about this later on in the Bible. If you look at 2 Timothy 4, he says this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, he should know, shouldn't he? I mean, he's describing Galatia right there. That's how you can read the Bible too, by the way. He's describing Galatia. He should know. He should know what's happening. Bad teaching, listen, we all love. I mean, our ears do itch. And certain things scratch the itch, right? I mean, you all know, whenever we hear certain things, it's just like, oh, yeah, I love this. And it it meets the need. And he's saying, as a church, we don't always collect some of the teaching we need to collect around us. And and we start taking bad theology in. It's like mosquitoes or athlete's foot. Anyone in here have athlete's foot? Come on. Raise your hand if you've got athlete's foot in here, men. Ladies, nobody. (laughs) Me, Me and Jeff are the only ones. You know, you could scratch and you could scratch and you can scratch that athlete's foot. It's just going to get worse. It gets worse. And you could tell me, Luke, quit scratching that. It's going to get worse. I'm going to be like, oh, it feels too good. I'm not stopping. But that's the way it is. Sound teaching doesn't always feel good. That's what we get from this passage. Sound teaching does not satisfy the itch our ears have. But get this, hear this. This passage is not talking about bad people in some dysfunctional church and some weird place that you're never going to go to. It's not talking about that. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. We can't endure sound teaching. It's not just for bad people. It's for you and your family and your friends and cute little babies. It's for us. It's aiming for us. We run out of endurance for sound teaching. 
Here's a classic way in which we do this. We, and I think this might have been what Galatians was getting caught up in. I think. I don't know this for certain. We have a short endurance to hearing things like the gospel is the remedy for everything. That's hard for us, right? Luke, it's all you preach. The gospel fixes this and the gospel fixes that. And this is because you don't believe the gospel and the gospel is the remedy for that. Gospel, gospel, gospel. I want it to be about stuff I can do. Give me some steps. Give me a process. Give me some tricks. Gospel, gospel, God, Jesus, all that stuff. What do I do? What about me? Me, me. Will you say it out loud? It sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? But that's what our flesh really wants. Paul is saying that many people will abandon hard teaching because they can't endure it. And then he says in Galatians, whenever they do abandon the truth, they're abandoning God himself. And those, friends, are very hard words. And people threw rocks at him for saying it. And then they killed him. So very predictably, what does this hold for us today? Very predictably, it's the gospel cures us. The gospel cures our desire for a wrong audience. And the gospel cures our desire for wrong teaching. It does both. The gospel cures us. You see, innately, since you were born, you have had this need for an approving audience around you to make you feel valuable. And that is because you struggle seeing the value God has already given you in Christ. That's very difficult for you to comprehend. And because you have a hard time finding that, you start getting it from other people because that's easier. At least that you can define and do, right? It's hard to understand how God does it. But you have to understand, as God is your singular audience, He values you as much as He values Jesus. That almost sounds heretical, and that's because it's really good. Now listen, God loves you, Christian. He loves you as much as He loves His own Son. If that's true, what business do we have trying to secure value and approval and acceptance from broken creation when we already have it with a holy Creator? That's tough. By the way, the answer to your poor self-esteem is not inflating yourself and patting yourself on the head and saying, I can do it, I'm a good person, I'm a beautiful person. That's not the answer either. That's not. That's just a Christian version of Dr. Phil. What you need to do is just forget that you're even in the center of the story. You're not even in the story. The story is not even about you. The story is about God. The glory of your story is God is in the middle. That's the glory of your story. You, friend, are the postscript and the postscript and the postscript, not the other way around. You see, if you're in the middle of your story, then all of your affections are about yourself. Your intoxication is of yourself. Your fascination is of yourself. The characters need to swap, right? Further, you cannot lovingly handle and talk to other people if you're using and abusing them to meet your needs. If you are the middle of your own story, you cannot, and you love yourself more than you love others, you cannot help other people because there will always be that time where you should say something and you're just not going to do it. You're going to punt. Why? Because it's not going to make me look very good if I say that, Luke. I mean, the air will just leave the room as soon as that leaves my mouth. I can't do that, right? Well, what are you thinking about yourself? So are you really loving that person? No. No, you're not. If you're getting your identity and your value from somebody else, you're abusing them. You're abusing them. You're using them. You're not loving them. You're not helping them, right? 
You're trusting other people. You're trusting other people to fill your tank. This is why it says in Jeremiah, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. It's a very true scripture. So what we need to do as a church around that truth of the gospel is to fix our gaze on God and then ask God to make himself bigger in our gaze. To fix our gaze and our eyes on God and say, God, make yourself big in my eyes that nothing else would compete with it. Make yourself huge that I would become tiny. That you would increase that I would decrease. Because if you fix your eyes on Christ, you will move your gaze from yourself. And you need to trust God's value of you, by the way, Christian. You need to do that. As you pray today, as we worship and as we go through trust his value of you. I mean, I say things like God loves you as much as he loves Jesus, and there is still a piece of you that's like, whatever. I mean, whenever I say words like Apostle Paul, doesn't it just feel like God loved him more than he loves us? He's Apostle Paul. He's varsity, man. Apostle Paul. God loves you as much as he loved Paul. That's a fact. Straight up. Some of you, you feel the need and the desire for bad teaching. And the bad teaching puts you in control. You like teaching that puts you in control. You like to be in control. You don't like it when God is big because you want to be big. You don't like it when it is taught that God is glorious because you want to be glorious. You don't like it being taught that God is in absolute control because you want to be told that you're in absolute control. That's why we like to be in control. Give me some steps. Give me some things I can do and I can achieve, right? We like to prove to ourselves, prove to each other, even prove to God that we're worth it. God, I'm worth it. I mean, thanks for saving me, but I mean, come on, check me out. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm worth it, right? When it's all said and done, I'm going to bring more good than bad to the table, right, God? Uh, the gospel is only for people who know how filthy they are. It's not for anyone else. The gospel is only for filthy people. You can't be saved from filth if you think you're clean. You can't be rescued from a dangerous situation if you don't think you're in peril. You can't be adopted into a family if you don't think you're alone. You have to see your wretched state. That's the beauty of the teaching of regeneration. That beautiful moment where God, just heaven just scrapes the pavement, chisels in, breaks us open, and we look and we say, oh my God, what have I done to you? And then we see God and we say, oh my God, what have you done for me? That is when salvation occurs. That's when salvation occurs. You can't be brought into peace if you don't even know you're troubled. And you cannot be brought grace unless you are humble. The Bible says so. You know, I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to jump into our second set of worship. The reason we do this as a church, as Wes already said, is because we want you to respond to this. Now, the response might look different for some of you. Worship is a response. Prayer is a response. We have communion in the back. Communion is a response. Where we rally as a church around what represents broken body and spilt blood as we take it together as a family. Now, if you're a guest and you're not sure you're a Christian or you know for a fact you're not Christian, as we said last week, we don't invite you to take communion. We want, we want you to take Christ instead. We want you to find Jesus as your point of adoration. That's what we would like to see. So your time of response, we would usher you towards Christ, away from yourself as being king and towards him as being king. 
I mean, Paul hopefully had some things to say to you today in Galatians. Because many of you who are away from Christ have been doing a lot of things to make yourself very clean before God. And it's just not working, friend. It's not. But the good news for you is the gospel is only for the filthy. It's only for the filthy. It doesn't work for anyone else. Right? So we would invite you to take Christ instead.